Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Welcome to Pine Glass Preachers. I'm Tom, and with me, whether you like it or not, are Josh and Gabe. Today, we welcome Kyle Jones, creator of The Gospel Economist. As a shareholder making capital investments in Jesus Incorporated, I'm looking to Kyle to help me understand market fluctuations that could cause a higher ratio of depreciation on my faith-based assets. We'll explore the relationship between capital gains tax versus return on investment when looking at purchasing an IPO for megachurch holdings. Well, at least, I think that's what we're talking about. I don't know, guys. We're going to have to figure this out. I wish I understood a single word. Of yeah, that, that was graph. such financial language. I don't like, think I don't think a sing. I think there were financial words there. I don't think a single one of them made sense. No, it was like a Google translation. Like you put in a bunch of English and instead of German or like Mandarin, you put in financial that's not even a real language, but you know what I mean. Economic yeah. terms. Wait, but Tom, you know, you know those words, right? Like you're, you have a real job. Yeah, yeah. yeah don't play down, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. actually know what those meant. Yeah, yeah. Some of them made sense, and some of them individually make sense. Just you know, I purposely kind of just put a bunch of them together. So you know, did you do it just to make you sound like really smart, or was it intentionally witty? Uh, you know, I don't know. Kind of a a little bit of both, but I, I will tell you this: Chris Mojan, who listens to this and is one fine financial planner, wealth advisor, uh, he is going to listen to this and he is going to laugh and then make fun of me for it. So, wait, quick question on that. Yep, I've met with financial planners before. Yep, slash wealth advisors. Yep. I've always thought it was ironic because I do not have any wealth to advise. <laughs> and so I feel like it's always an awkward conversation for them because they're like, so what are your goals? I'm like, to not be living hand to mouth. To and they're eat. like, oh, cool. <laughs> like they never know what to do. You know, yeah. I, I get the same thing. They, 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 it appears that they think I'm blowing them off. But what I'm really mm-hmm. trying to do is shield them from the embarrassment of looking at my financial record. That's it. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's actually... I mean, it's actually the catch-22 of the financial planning world because everybody does need financial planning and we, you know, it would be smart to start right away. But the problem is a 25-year-old newly married couple who needs almost zero products won't make any money for the financial planner. And so they could spend time with you and make $22 in commission, or they could work with this guy who makes... 2 million bucks a year and make a hundred thousand dollars. And so who do you think they're going to spend their time with? And so it just kind of becomes a thing, you know, it, it's a catch 22. It is. It is. All well, right. That was way too in depth. We need to, we need to get to what we're talking, what we're drinking. Uh, I am drinking a Bavarian Dunkel from Leinen Kugels from the great state of Wisconsin. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I'm going to, Wow, I can't believe you said that Tom. No, no. I like Wisconsin. I just, don't like their football teams. That's true. Okay, that's true. You've said that. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I I like Lining Kugels. I, I especially like their creamy dark. And so I was excited about this Bavarian Dunkel. It's okay. I hate to break it to you, but once the initial you know excitement about Lining Kugels wears off, the deep set realization that it's terrible beer actually becomes reality. You know. Th- you're right. I mean, most of their beers are not that good. Uh, their Creamy Dark, though, is a fantastic beer. I really mm-hmm. do like that one. Mm-hmm. But this you one, know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm, I'm going to give it a meh. Well, Gosh, you literally good. just, like, shattered so much for me with that. I know. I did. And and you know why? It's okay because I've played a little bit of role reversal tonight. 
Go on. For the first time ever on oh, Pint Glass uh, Preachers, I am not even drinking a beer. What? Yep. I'm pulling a Tom, going alcoholic status, <laughs> and poured myself, just to keep it local, I'm feeling very nostalgic today, poured myself some of Chattanooga's own Chattanooga whiskey. Ooh. Distilled here. It's the first distillery, legal distillery since Prohibition. And oh, let me tell you, it is man. genuinely some of the best whiskey I have ever had. So I poured myself a little bit of their um, delightful aged malt liquor. Well, that's very nice. I, uh, you know, while keeping it local, I, I think this is the first time I've had an Austin beer. Like I've certainly drank my fair share of Texan beers on this show. But uh, this is from Circle Brewery uh, here in Austin, Texas. It's uh, Blur Texas Hefeweizen, uh, made by Circle Brewery, uh, really about 15 miles away from me. So cheers to that. It's pretty good. Cheers. Clink, you know, clink. This is going to be just a little bit of a tangent, but uh, your, your, your beer is Blur. Uh, it makes me think of Blurred Lines, which makes me think of Robin Thicke. Which, which makes me think of Alan Thicke, who died. I know, right? Can you believe that? What? I mean, I can believe it. Like, everyone dies, but Alan Thicke. Who saw that coming? No one. We all no thought one. he'd live forever. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, his last name is Thicke. Can't Playing, I don't really, I don't really know what that has to do with anything. It just, play, it's a weird last playing name. Playing hockey with his son drops over a heart attack. Oh, that's how it happened? Is that I, for real? I didn't know that. Wait, yeah. with Robin? That son? Uh, not that son, I don't think. Oh. Wait, is Robin, wait, Robin Thicke is actually Alan Thicke's son? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That's hilarious. Yeah. That is so funny. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Dude, Dude. speaking of dying, wow. this leads Word to my story. So here I am at a lunch meeting uh, with another church planter in, the, in my, uh, my area. And uh, we're at this like Southern Bistro. Uh, and I'm eating a po' boy, a catfish po' boy. Delicious. Just going down great. And all of a sudden, I start to choke on a piece of the sandwich, which is like... This happens. The catfish bone? What? Catfish bone? Yeah. No, no bone. No bone. It was like, it was good. It was fine. It was all just on me. Um, but it was like, I, I start to like, you know, you can tell I'm joking. And so the buddy I'm eating with just goes, oh, hey, Gabe, want me to give you the Heimlich? And like, I wanted to laugh, which I mean, it wasn't that funny, but I wanted to laugh and I couldn't because I was dying. And, uh, and so it was really scary for a moment. And then I just started making really, really loud noises and eventually coughed and hacked it out. Which leads me to ask you a question. Has that ever happened to you? And if it has, isn't it the worst and you feel like a turd the rest of your meal? I've never <laughs> almost died by choking. What? Food. I mean, I, I eat my fair share of food, but... Lord knows you do. I know, I know. But I've never had a near-death experience with, with choking on food. I usually like to chew at least... 75 times per bite <laughs> both count? sides of the jaw just to make sure that it's turned to cud <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about cud enough in this show but tom you're old you probably had a ton more life experiences than either gabe or i so you had to have come close to dying while eating yeah well, because i'm a classy individual i uh i cut my food into reasonable proportions before child, i child shove it down my pie hole child size portions Oh my gosh! Nothing bigger than a fingernail. It's because right. I don't eat like a simpleton. Uh, you wow. know. Wow. Okay. Just take it there, Tom. You Just know. Take it. I almost see. I almost go to see the Lord, and this is the response of two of my best friends. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Okay. If, if I would have been there, dude, I would have been behind you, just <laughs> pumping and thrusting <laughs> that food out of there. <laughs> just so you know. Thanks, buddy. Oh man. No, I. Really nice of you. I haven't even wit. I actually haven't even witnessed that at a restaurant. Someone choking and needing really? Heimlich or anything. No, I've done it like five times myself. My brother-in-law's wife one time straight up gave my father-in-law the Heimlich at. I don't know if it was like a Thanksgiving meal or something. Yeah, straight up, like he was like dying, and she just stepped up. Man, put the fist in his chest and boom, shot that thing right out of his throat. Yeah, it was crazy. It I was feel crazy. like if that ever happens, I'm just leaving the restaurant like i realize that i'm dying and i shouldn't be embarrassed about dying or almost dying but i'm out like but you should be because it was your own fault for not chewing <laughs> well and in one sense though i was I, I actually kind of agree with you tom but the restaurant i was in is in a double wide 
So it kind of welcomes <laughs> that sort of atmosphere. Like I think like people were like, you oh, actually... that guy's here today, you know? Well, and if you would have died, you probably wouldn't have been the first one. There's probably a couple of bodies underneath the double right. died from yeah, of course, I mean, clearly, of course. clearly. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So, well, I'm sorry you almost Gabe, died, Gabe. I'm, I'm glad you're here with us. Thanks, Gabe. Man. When we come down to Austin, we'll have to check that out. It'll be fun. It'll be good. It'll be good. Hey, we well, when you guys come down, I'll take you. But in the meantime, Tom, would you share with that. our good listeners our uh, social media shout outs and folks that ways they can connect with us online? And then uh, we'll head into our time with uh, Mr. Kyle G. Jones. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so number one, check us out on our Facebook page. Please follow us on Twitter at Pint Glass Preachers. Uh, also, don't check us out at our website, www.pintglasspreachers.com. Don't go there because we're not there anymore. In fact, we are now hosted by our ministry partners, The Gospel Economist. The Gospel Economist, which is in turn created by the great Kyle G. Jones. And so The Gospel Economist is an online publication made up of a consortium of writers that calls attention to the exchange of sin for forgiveness wherever it is seen in everyday life. Check them out at www.medium.com backslash the dash gospel dash economist you can also find our website or our podcast prominently displayed there as well so we're going to go to break and when we come back we are going to be talking to kyle jones we're going to be talking about the gospel economist and probably a couple other things as well Well, everyone, we are back. Hope you enjoyed the break. But unfortunately, we have returned uh, for yet another <laughs> segment of Pint Glass Preachers. Uh, so but as uh, as horrible as it is to listen to the three of us yahoos, you are fortunate enough to get to listen to the one, the only Kyle <laughs> G. Jones. He is the uh, Minister of Family and Youth at All Saints Lutheran Church in Arlington, Texas, uh, home of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, right up there in the DFW area. Uh, he is also the founder of the Gospel Economist and the editor for it and a contributor to it. And Kyle, I also believe you're a musician, as I recall. Is that right? I am. Awesome. Well, Kyle, it is uh, great to have you with us. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, speaking of music. Well, I'm glad to be able to join you. Does anyone remember that song? from Space Jam, Basketball Jones, got my Basketball Jones. Every time I hear Kyle G. Jones' name, that song pops into my head, <laughs> Basketball Jones. Kyle, is that offensive? I hope it's been it's a long not. time. No, no, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. But also, that and there's a million Jones-type songs out there. That's true. Oh, yeah. Me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones. And that's how Titus was born, everyone. That's very true. Very true. <laughs> Accurate. Let's let's spend the right, whole start. episode singing like just half bars of of any song that has the word Jones in it. That would just be ridiculous, Tom. And we are much better than that. <laughs> are we yeah. debatable? <laughs> are a we? little better, man. Highly questionable. Not even true. Not even close. So I'm sorry I started that whole Jones song rant. Uh, well, Kyle, we are, are definitely glad to have you here, man. And, uh, you know, I know a little bit about you, but but I'd love for our listeners and, and really for all of us here just to know um, some more about who you are, kind of your story. You know, I know you're in ministry now and you're doing the Gospel Economist and we can get to that in a little bit. But we just love to know a little about who you are, kind of the uh, the Reader's Digest version, if you will, kind of three minutes uh, Kyle Jones bio, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. Oh, cool. All right. So... I'm um, so originally from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, not too far away from uh, Tanner Olson in Orlando. And then uh, I went to Concordia University, Austin, Whoosh. now Concordia University, Texas, and uh, graduated with a degree in religious education, did the whole and uh, been married four years now, going on five almost. and. Uh, Moved up to Frisco, did some stuff there with some church planning networks, and then moved over to Arlington to be the director of youth and family ministry at All Saints. 
Do you know what happens in Frisco, Texas? You get frisky. Do you know what happens every year in Frisco, Texas? Besides the Jimmy Buffett concert? Besides the Jimmy Buffett concert, the North Dakota State buys and win a football championship there. That's what happens every year in Frisco, Texas. (laughs) Do they play at the high school football stadium there for that? I don't know. Frisco's got like this huge stadium that I think just all the different high schools play at and the FCS, FCS championship is played there every year and every year NDSU wins it. Go Bison. (laughs) You know, Tom, did I ever tell you I went to North Dakota once? No, once. (laughs) Only once. And it was exactly what I thought it would be. Yeah, it really is. I mean, cold and barren and... Yeah, whatnot. But hey, the folks, I mean, the people though were just some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Oh yeah. I mean I mean they weren't they weren't thrilled with the fact that I was trying to run a oil pipeline through their their land, but um <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. He went there. He went hey, there. On on a lighter note though, of honesty and transparency, I found myself in an iron workers union hall the uh the other night last week. Uh-huh. And I've never been in one. And when I walked in the front door, I looked at the dude who like heads the chapter of the Southeast and I'm like, Hey man, I've never been in one of these. Never really imagined what one would look like. But now that I'm standing here, this is exactly what I would have imagined an iron workers <laughs> union all to be, you know, like a bunch of like actual iron work around and old archaic bright orange 1970s, you know, polyester chairs. And it was just one of those things. It's, sometimes you just show up in a place and it's exactly what it should be. Mm-hmm. We can discuss North Dakota all day, but I want to hear more about Kyle, and I want to hear more about the Gospel Economist. Hmm. So what is it, Kyle? What's the Gospel Economist like? And you know what? I'm just going to tell you. I forewarned you about this question. Why, why did you start this? I mean, it's a is it a blog? Is that like the simplest definition? Um. Yeah, I guess. I prefer to use the term publication. It's a little bit more accurate to... Uh, the website that we're actually hosted on, which is medium.com, they kind of set themselves up as, but then you can get a bunch of writers together and they do what's called a publication and you just work with other writers. You can collaborate, you can edit, you can put out there, you can have more people follow what you're doing as a group instead of trying to be all out there by yourself. Gotcha. Okay. And so Gospel Economist has more writers than just you. Correct. If it was just me, we wouldn't be talking about this. This is true. This is true. All right. Well, then let's let's go back to it, though, because uh, one of the things that I was going to ask you about was like, bro, there are enough Christian blogs out there. Uh, why why start this one? Why are you doing this? What's kind of the, the, the end game here with uh, with the Gospel Economist? Well, the end game, above all else, is to be a place on the internet, but especially on Medium, that shares the truth of the gospel with people, that shares the gospel economy itself, that God gives us his son freely in exchange for our sins, our garbage, our nonsense, all of that stuff that comes from within us. And there's just nothing on Medium in and of itself that does that. While there's lots of other of Medium that do that, I wanted to start something on Medium itself because that's such a good blogging platform, at least for me personally. And so it needed to exist. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Hey, by the way, so where'd you get the title from? And, and I asked that as a leading question. I know where you got it from, but where'd you get the title from? Well, I got the title, kind of just came to me a little bit, but of course I had to do market research and type into Google if anybody had already used that brilliant idea that I apparently came up with. And uh, nobody had taken it. And uh, I had read an article by R.J. Grunwald up in Michigan on uh, Christ Hold Fast. And he had put into words perfectly the things that I was already thinking about about God's economy. And he used perfect specific language about exchanging all of our sin and our garbage for Christ's perfection and his righteousness. And so I thought, this is a good way. Uh, It seemed like a fresh way to be able to say the gospel and get people to think about it in a different way. 
So give me give me a couple examples because I mean I think it's really easy to think about. Okay, we sin and God sends His Son and everything equals out and we're all good. Uh, so we can write all sorts of theological papers on that. But but tell us about how some of these writers give me some examples about how some of these writers on on the Gospel Economist are are looking at at that that topic in a creative way. So a really cool article that came out when we first started getting into the Gospel Economist was actually written by Kelsey Clambera. She's uh, the wife of Doug Clambera, who actually does a lot of design work for uh, Christ Hold Fast. And she lives in the Dallas area. And I had known Doug for a little while, so I asked her to join me because she was already on Medium. And she wrote this article called Pure Gift. And she talked about how gift giving in America, especially birthdays and particularly Christmas, leads us to think about fair exchange. You give me a gift and then I give you a gift back in return. And she automatically turned it around because that's something that she struggles with, is this idea of getting gifts for free, not earning gifts that people get. And so she talked about how in America we exchange gifts instead of just getting gifts from God himself. And so we always want to put our, we always want to have our own skin in the game when it comes is to that salvation. Only, is that only an American thing? I'm not talking in terms of salvation, but like I've, I've heard that before. I've probably said it before actually about the exchange of gifts in America and this sort of like innate guilt and desire to offer something in return or receive something in return. But like, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is, is that just an American thing or is that a universal um, I mean, a, a universal, I don't even know how to say it, like sort of like rejection of pure gift giving and receiving. Dude, Josh, you are channeling your inner like 20th century postmodern French postmodern philosopher right now. You, basketball Jones. You didn't realize basketball it. Jones. No, but seriously, like this is Jacques Derrida, who's this, this French postmodern philosophy like this is his whole deal as he talks about the impossibility of a gift and now obviously he's a western context as well so i you know i don't know east or but he's french he's french right so who who knows what they are right so anyways um so say a little bit more about that impossibility yeah yeah so so he calls he says gifts are impossible he says it's impossible to give a gift and and kind of what he gets at is um the idea that that like a gift inherently has uh, an expectation of reciprocation. Now, obviously, not every time a gift is given do I expect a physical gift to be given back to me. But his point being like, you know, if if I give Tom a watch, at the very least, I'm expecting to go up in his. Uh, sort of social relationships or at the very least I'm expecting to be seen in a better light. And so, so there's no gift that I can give without expecting at least something in return. And so he says, so is it, is it, is that really a gift then? Because all you're doing is self-serving. All you're really doing is elevating yourself in the status of other people and or accumulating more material things for yourself. Yeah, I, you know, I even think about it in the negative term of if I do something for somebody and I truly like I don't expect them to reciprocate uh, right then and there or something like that, you it's kind of in the back of your head later on. Right. D- down the road, you know, like, man, I paid for that guy's beers like four times in a row. At least he could do is pay for it once, you know? Exactly. Or, or even if you don't think that, right? Even if you're like, like, say it's a poor dude, right? Like, and he, you just know he's not going to be able to. Mm-hmm. But at least in the back of your head, you're thinking, that guy's going to think I'm pretty nice. That guy's going to think I'm pretty generous. And yep. so, so in that sense, it's that inherent reciprocation that it just lives inside each of us. I, I'm also interested just in the in the thought process around uh, this. I feel like I feel the need to give a gift because that's the social norm. I uh, we do this thing with our friends all the time. You know, when you when you get invited over for dinner, well, what can what can I bring? You know, yeah. and, and 
And we got a couple friends that we go back and forth to each other's houses all the time. And we always play this game of what can I bring? I was like, look, at the end of the day, it evens out. You bring a bottle of wine, I'm going to bring a bottle of wine. You bring a dessert, I'm going to bring a dessert. If you come over to my house, I will provide everything. And when you come and when we come to your house, you provide everything, you know? Right. And then right, we right. can stop playing this game. You yeah. Know? But, well, well, I mean, I, th- I think that can be directly tied to a Western understanding of hospitality, which is a reciprocal, you know, relationship. If you look at like, especially biblical hospitality, you know, which is a huge thing for me, then, then it was a, an offense given to the host. If you even offered to bring anything or, or, or give anything, contribute anything to the meal, to the event, whatever, you know? And so I'm not so much as concerned and even questioning the idea of reciprocation, more of our inability to accept a gift. And I think this is something that when we, we speak of the gospel economy that as Western Christians, we struggle with because how many of us like, you know, as pastors, we stand up there and we say, or, or those of us who are pastors, our, our task is to say, this is a free gift, receive it. And just like, accept it for what it is and it's so unbelievable because you don't have to reciprocate yeah and you know people say oh well okay great you know either in a very cheap way or there's no way i deserve that hence i can't accept it but i think that the larger and deeper issue lies with this inability of us to accept a gift or even a gesture of kindness without feeling some type of guilt or or some type of and for reciprocation like for me personally like I love to, you know, um, in, in my community, at least with our church, be hospital as, as hospitable as much as possible. The other night, it backfired on me. So Jenny and I were out at a restaurant, a couple that had just recently relocated to Chattanooga to, to join, and we were out to dinner. Well, in walks a another pastor from South Chattanooga who I recognized and, and I don't know this guy very much, but my my first inclination was to talk to our server and say, "Hey, I want to I want to buy that guy their drinks." Well, she tells me they didn't get any drinks, so except for like Coke or whatever. I'm like, "Okay, well, I, I want to pay for their meal." So I'm thinking, here I am offering up this free gift to these guys, right? I'm I'm buying this pastor and his wife a meal while they're out on a date just to be like a, a nice guy or whatever. It was right. just like some kind of obligatory feeling that I had uh, based in, and rooted in hospitality. Yeah. So we do it. He says, thanks. Cool. I go back and I'm telling um, Mark, who was on Pine Class Preachers episode two or three, I think, you know, yeah. our youth minister, my, my homeboy. And I tell him about us and he goes, man, he's like, that's going to do the opposite of what you were trying because now everyone in the neighborhood is going to think you were sucking up to that guy. And it and it blew my mind. I was so confused because I was like, wait a second. Here I am offering a free gift just simply because I was trying to be hospitable, expecting no reciprocation in return. He didn't even attempt to reciprocate, and yet it's still going to backfire within the framework of our Western understanding of of basically what it means to to offer something completely and entirely free. You know, I, I've got a comment which I which leads into a question then for Kyle. Um, the, as Lutherans, one of the things that I find really interesting is how we can't accept these gifts, um, especially this gift of forgiveness, because we keep berating ourselves over and over and over again, and and being very feeling very guilty about our sins. But at the same time, we are told every single week that God freely gives us forgiveness. And we should be able to walk away with a clean conscience and a clean heart and, and be freed emotionally and physically and in all ways, but we don't, and we keep holding ourselves in. But that's one of the amazing things I think that Kyle, you're trying to get at with, with your gospel economists is that, is that God freely gives us this gift. Josh, you were trying to freely give this gift with nothing in return, but it doesn't always have that effect. I wonder, uh, do all your writers share the exact same uh, viewpoint around this grace and this forgiveness or, or, and, and how do you, how, how do you, how do you look if you have a writer who doesn't, who, yeah, who I mean, doesn't is there, call that? Yeah. Like what kind of moderation or is it just yeah, an, that's, an yeah. openly free economy? 
<laughs> you guys see what I did yeah. there? See what I did there, Tom? That was I hilarious. Thank you. Clever, yeah. witty. So uh, all of the writers that we currently have for Gospel Economist are writers that I personally asked to join me on this journey that I'm taking. Stuff that I've either seen them write before or I know them on a personal level. So they, I know that they share this idea that, well, it's more than an idea, but they know and get the concept of the gospel economy in and of itself. But don't necessarily have the doors wide open for people, but don't shy away from somebody who just gets it, who knows that God's gifts are free for us and want to continually remind people of that. So you because we forget all the time, which is why I think all the time. So you're not going to have a writer who leans more towards a works righteousness type of viewpoint. No, that would count. That would totally contradict what we're aiming for in the first place. Right. At least in my brain. Yeah. And for those of us listening who aren't familiar with works righteousness, we're talking about a concept of that we do good works and thus earn earn God's forgiveness. And in that way of thinking, at least from the Lutheran standpoint, how do you know how many good works you need to do to cover up your sin? And that's an equation we don't, no one could answer. And that's why we lean towards God covering it all. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Great radio you. game. Astute, Thank you. astute observation. Now, so Kyle, one of the things that I think that's interesting about the Gospel Economist is this idea in which, you know, kind of stated on the website, you have this idea that wherever we see God's gospel economy, we want to kind of make it known and kind of in particular in culture. And, and, and I think that's interesting. And in many ways parallels what we try to do, at least in this podcast, is to say, hey, let's Let's take some of these aspects of culture, let's take aspects of our life, and, and where can we find truth in that? But you're saying, like, not even just truth, but where can we find gospel economy in culture? And so what does that mean, and, and what does that look like? How have you seen that play itself out? Well, so, so far it's been pretty amazing to watch some of our writers that we have kind of bring that to the forefront better than I could. They seem to have a better... They are much better writers than I am. They are oftentimes greater thinkers than I am, and they just see it. And it's, uh, Adam Meyer's piece, The Gospel According to Hip Hop, was a great piece that did that, where he talked about how artists are already infusing God's gospel message songs as if they're just part of life, and there's not this big difference. Mm -hmm. And another one that article that I found quite interesting that blew my mind was written by uh, Emily Finke up in uh, Tennessee as well, Josh's neck of the woods. Yup, Knoxville. Song leaves you dry eyed. So she's looking at church worship culture and kind of how we get trapped experience. Not the most it's a pseudonymy and his forgiveness is wrapped up in how we felt during worship on a Sunday morning. But God's forgiveness is still with us, whether or not we had an emotional response to the sermon or this song or another. And so it's in church culture that we sometimes need to be reminded of what God is doing for us. Dude, so I think both those points you made are actually tapping into something. So, so one, you mentioned the Adam Meyer article. Um, about the, the gospel according to hip hop and how these artists are just sort of implementing it as if that's part of life. And, and so I want to hold up, have us kind of walk into that one there real quick. Cause I think it ties into your second point too, with Emily's article, but like, I feel like sometimes people, we have a hard time grasping that. Right. So, so there's sort of this uh, ethereal metaphysical idea, like, Okay, at some point in history, you know, let's say 33 AD, a man dies on a cross and, and rises again three days later. Let's just let's just take that as a historical reality. Of course, we all believe that, but listeners, just just bear with me on this, okay? Whether or not you do or don't, um, that happens. 
And somehow that's supposed to just be an assumed part of my life, a, a day in, day out thing that impacts every single thing I do. The, the, the actions of this man who dies on a cross and rises again somehow is impacting how I'm raising my kids, how I'm going to work, how I'm eating my breakfast. Like, I, I think that's a really hard thing for people to, to grasp. Like, like, how does that even work? And so maybe I just throw that out to the group. What do you guys think about that? Good. Profound. Good. Profound. Really good, guys. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I think you're right, but at the same time, like, I, I think that speaks to what Kyle referenced in even Adam's article, you know, and his publication on, you know, this this gospel sort of identity that's evidenced in perhaps non-Christian mainstream settings. You know what I mean? Like, I think that when we talk about, say, natural law, we tend to categorize that as instructions, commandments, uh, actual laws, rules, morality, you know, you kind of name it. But I think that the natural law of God sort of incubates this idea that, that it does impact our daily life and it does affect how we live, whether we believe in it on a faith-based level or we choose to reject it. You know what I mean? So I think like deep inside, the natural law being written on our hearts says, this does affect how we think, act, and work, play, etc. It's I think the step of faith is grasping that and saying, okay, let me allow it then to do what it says it will do, you know, as delivered through the gospel. Is that heretical? Did I just I is the best way to think about that in terms of I know that if I'm at work and I'm I'm just a rude person or fairly surly in nature like that like I know deep down that's not the best way to be interacting with my fellow man that it should be born right. out of love it should I, I I should be nicer I should you know that 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 that's inherently what it should be but man I just I just want to be sure I, I don't care about, you know, whatever it happens to be. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Well, see, and here's where I think I, I'm not sure it is. Uh, because in one sense, yes, Tom, you're right. Like there, there's a pragmatism to what Josh is talking about in terms of natural law, where like, if you're not a turd, it generally works out better for you. If you're not slinging right. dope on the corner, it generally works out better for you. Not always. But generally speaking, you sort of follow the inherent moral compass that people seem to have, and life seems to work out a little better for you, generally speaking. What I what I feel like uh, gospel economist is getting at, what Kyle's getting at here, is, is not so much the following of rules, but the living in grace. And 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 so what does that actually mean? when it comes to the most mundane elements of life like that that's what i'm diving towards is that you guys get what i'm saying there sure so yeah i do i'd love to hear what kyle has to say about that yeah oh i definitely i definitely think that that is where where what the aim is because with the idea of natural law and all that stuff we generally know the rules nobody wants to have their stuff taken from them nobody thinks it's acceptable for somebody to come into their house and steal their spouse and their kids and then just drive off and say they're mine now. Nobody wants those things to happen. But we live in a world where there is sin and we have these rules to curb evil and all that kind of stuff. But we know we don't live up to those standards, even if they're small rules that we break all the time. And so we constantly need to be reminded of what God is doing for us continually. And it's not this stuff that we've earned is this free gift. And it's, I guess, another way to think about this, this idea of practicing a high anthropology versus a low anthropology or a, a high view of man versus a low view. What I mean by that is that the world around us wants to deep down believe somewhere that we're good first, that our base level is good. The opposite, that 
the deeper you go, the worse you get. I mean, the account of the flood is a perfect example in chapter 6 of Genesis where I'm going to send this flood. Every intention of man's heart is evil continually. Oh, and sorry, real quick, Kyle. Sorry, sorry. Tom, uh, Genesis, Tom, you know, is the first book of the Bible. Is that? Yeah. Not Matthew. Not, no. No, that's, okay. yeah. That's <laughs> so ridiculous. I just wanted to keep Tom. So ridiculous. Sometimes he gets lost. He gets lost. I do. Okay, I do. sorry, Kyle. Carry on. The flood, no. every desire of man's heart is evil. Go on. Yeah. And then after the flood, God says the same thing again. I won't send a flood on the earth because man's heart is intentional from, is intentionally evil from his youth and that kind of stuff. So it's not that we have some goodness inside ourselves that we need to aspire to find and then be better. Instead, the real freedom that comes from living in God's economy is living in the truth of Christ himself, that we have life and righteousness now here in time and space because he came in time and space and did this work for us on our behalf. Dude, so, man, I feel like you're tapping into something that I think many of our listeners may wrestle with is is I think sometimes um, people hear kind of the the Christian anthropology and are like, man, you have such a low view of humanity, right? That, you know, whether you're you're Calvinist and you like to say total depravity or you're Lutheran and you like to say we have a sinful nature, uh, however you want to frame it we consistently across the Christian tradition would say inherent in man, our natural bent is towards evil, not good. Um, man, is that fair? Is that right? Are, are, are we off our rocker there? Well, I don't think so in that if God is going to be God in and of himself, he can't be to our standards, God. Otherwise he's kind of just a pet. We can just, well, God, you need to be like this, so get it together. And so all of a sudden we become the arbiters of good and evil when we can't see the big picture in the world. And if God is truly the only righteous one, then that makes him the only one who can truly judge us in that sense. So let me go for it, Tom. Let me ask a question about this low anthropology of man and I'll be the first one to jump on board and say, yeah, we are, we are completely sinful and all of this. But then there, I think for the person who's standing outside of Christianity um, or questioning is, whoa, wait, we're not all bad. And I, you know, I'm thinking of the conversation I had with my grandma the other day. My grandma loves me. She loves me a lot. And my grandma, I'm really, really certain does not love me based on, any kind of needing of reciprocal love or anything. She loves me because she does. And so when you see instances like that, when you see people doing good things for others, I think that's where maybe people get a little confused and saying, yeah. well, how can we be completely depraved if if I'm seeing this? Yeah. It's yeah, no, it's a good, it is a good question. And I think it's one of those thinking about our relationship with God on the vertical plane versus relationship with our neighbors on the horizontal plane. I don't know if your listeners are aware of that terminology in any way, but essentially knowing our relationship between each other, we can certainly do good things for one another, but that doesn't mean that we don't have this inborn sin that lives within us. We just certainly show love to other people, but showing love to God in the way that he would require it to be makes us fall short well and, and, and another thing i i think in that it. in that horizontal relationship going back to the beginning of our of our conversation we talked a lot about you know this this giving a gift loving somebody that that more often than not there is some expectation of of a reciprocal action right yeah if i clean the dishes then my wife is going to say, yeah, you, you go sit and watch TV. I'll clean the bathroom, you know, you know, whatever it happens to be. 
I will do this for my kid and I'm hoping he will clean his room, you know, whatever. But, but I think there are those instances, my grandma's love for me, my mom's love for me, like that there's no reciprocal action that is required or expected there. But do you know, and and I think that, I think that is, I think that is a brief glimpse into what God really wanted for us. I think I, I would go on Kyle. I would agree with that. But see, here's the thing. I mean, I agree, I agree with that. that to a certain degree, Tom. But part of it, too, is like, if I were to be super skeptical of that, yeah. I would say, hey, yeah, she may even deceive herself into thinking she's being selfless in her love for you, be your grandma or your mother. I don't care, whichever one. Uh, she may even deceive herself into being selfless for you. But really what's behind that is a societal pressure that says mothers love their sons, grandmothers love their grandsons. And so she's living up to that expectation imposed on her by society. And she doesn't want to be looked at as a bad grandmother, as a bad mother, uh, whether spoken or not, it, it's, it lures in the back of her subconscious. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's a super cynical viewpoint of and and, and but is it i don't know that it is man I, like, see, I, I might I, be more realist than anything yeah no, no I, I mean i agree from the standpoint of my grandma is a super racist <laughs> like no joke she says things that i'm just it makes me uncomfortable She's not right, a listener, right, but, but, is she? no oh totally not i don't even know if she knows how to work a computer much less <laughs> but, but that's podcast. a very different thing for you josh and so you know, I, I yes, I think there are there are mothers who give birth to to children who are like I, I don't want this thing. I know this is you know they don't have the same experience as some mothers who, when that baby comes, they're like, oh my gosh, this is it's just this outpouring of emotion. This this is exactly what I thought it was. This is awesome, you know. I think that's the result of sin in the world that then not all things are equal there. But I do think that, that, that God's love, God's grace, what God intended for this world does crop up in things. Like I, I, I just refuse to believe that my, that my grandma loves me because like when I, when I was born, she's like, well, I guess I kind of got to love this kid because he's my grandson. Like, well, again, that's why I'd say, I think it's like maybe hidden. Like, like, like in, in no way do I think she's maybe ever consciously thought like, well, gotta love this kid. Cause it's my grandson. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of the, the expectation that's inherently placed on her as a Midwestern woman, it, you know, in the 20th century, like there's no other other way for her to think about it other than like, well, this kid's here, time to love it. Like, 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 like there's just nothing, nothing else to do about it. Yeah. But the opposite is true though. Of We have plenty of instances of like, yeah, no, I, I don't care about this is, you know, we have plenty of absentee grandparents, so you can definitely make the the decision not to, but I think right. that's, I think that highlights exactly what Gabe was getting at though. Fire. You know what Keep I mean? Going, Josh. That, that the fact that that exists actually proves the, and it's not even cynicism. Like once again, I'll call it realism, at least from a biblical perspective that that brokenness is our first desire and we only choose to mask or hide that brokenness in some attempt to versus actually accepting the corrupt nature that we have. Well, go, let's go back to the, to, to the Noah story where God wiped, sent the flood to wipe the earth of all these people who had every inclination in their heart was, was evil. Except for Noah, who then got kept, super drunk and exposed himself to his kids, yeah, and yeah, was yeah. not only shamed but punished for it. Yeah, We've yeah, all yeah. been there. We've all been there. <laughs> but especially after a flood, especially after like an epic flood. Yeah, what, as we've gone through those things. Yeah, yeah you know. But Sorry, go on. Part, part of the course. He he left Noah because Noah 
believed in God, kept some of the laws, did some things good. No, he, no, he, he, he was just, much like Abraham. He was the righteousness was credited to him because he simply sort of like admitted reality and trusted that God would deliver him. Yeah, can I jump in for a sec? Go, on, go Kyle. Kyle. Go, go, Kyle. Go, Kyle. Right, so one of the cool things about the Noah story in and of itself is it is God's true grace coming to Noah. And it's easy to see Noah as this righteous, righteous better-than-me figure because that's the way our brains want to think it. And because Scripture kind of leads in with that way. I mean, Scripture, in, when you meet Noah, the kind of the second time when God calls him, he it says that Noah walked with God and that he was blameless in his generation and a righteous man. But if you go back to chapter 5 in Genesis, where we meet Noah for the first time, we meet his dad who believes that he's supposed to be the, the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. He's the one who's going to give us rest from the curse of the ground. So Noah's dad knows the promise of Genesis chapter 3. And Noah luckily doesn't fall into that trap of thinking he's the savior of the world, even though in a way he saves the population of the world by obeying God's voice. But it's God who comes to Noah and says, hey, I'm going to do this. So here are some concrete and to build this ark so that you can be saved. And it's Noah's faith that saves him. I don't know if I explained that well enough for us. So, so, so you still have a component of Noah that is doing something marginally right, whether it's faith, whether it's whether it's obeying, or 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 loving God. He's doing something right enough that that allows him to be saved. Or you're saying the opposite that it's just God's grace, and then the it begs the question of then why didn't God save other people just on the on the basis of grace alone. Yeah, this guy's super evil, but hey, we're going to save him too. Well, and Tom, that does tie into, though, honestly, the second option you proposed maybe sounds silly, but that's actually what I would argue is the biblical answer, is is that, in fact, it is grace alone. Uh, And in fact, like, why some and not others? Uh, We call this the crux theologorum, the cross of theology. Dropping that bomb. And, well, and to reinforce Gabe's um, sweet Latin reference with the crux telegorum <clears throat> is look at the – forget Noah for a second. Let's look at the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? And You're such the, a homophobe. Dang it. It's come out. <laughs> nice pun, huh? See, I'm just on top of things tonight. You, are, with those kind of, with those, you know, I'm just rolling. Uh, no, but, okay, when, when you think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, God initially says, I'm going to wipe everybody out, mm-hmm. right? And then the deal is made. Oh, but you wouldn't wipe everything out if there were, what is it? It's uh, the he first one. He gets it down to 50. He gets it down to 50, basically. But essentially says, if there are righteous people still there, then you wouldn't wipe the whole city out. And God's like, okay, you're right. And so the appeal is made to the fact that there are still righteous who will suffer and who will die because of God's just punishment of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he allows the proclamation of the gospel to be made in an attempt to save as many as possible. And yet at the same time, they all die anyway. That makes no sense. So God doesn't make sense. Welcome to Pine Class Preachers. Hey, but that's but to me that is like that's the nature of grace. That's the scandal of grace, man. Like I just kind of funny. This kid I went to high school with, like, just posted a uh, a meme. Is that how you say? It? Is it meme? Meme? I think I think it's meme. That'd be my book. meme. Okay. Well, we just posted a meme. And I say it's meme. Uh, <laughs> you say meme. That's what people call their grandmothers in the south. <laughs> and and it's but he posted this meme of like. This, you know, like it was like an old school painting of like a little kid sitting on Jesus' lap and Jesus is like pointing somewhere. And the meme says like, uh, you know, it's like Jimmy asking Jesus like, hey, what's that over there? And Jesus says to him, oh, that's the man that that killed your 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 parents 
and uh, he repented on his deathbed, and now he's in paradise with you. Let's go meet him. And and the whole point of the meme is like this kid I went to high school with is like, I don't know, I guess he's an atheist now or something like that, which is just an adorable philosophy. But at any rate, um, and and he just uh, – and, and the point was like, the guy's like, I, d I don't get this. Like, how does that work? That this guy who killed this kid's family is now in paradise with him. And, you know, it was supposed to be this big, like, aha, you Christians are so dumb. And I was kind of like, yeah, no, that's exactly grace. Like, that's exactly the point. And it's foolishness to those who do not believe. Right. Mm -hmm. But if, if you don't see yourself as in, you know, on the same playing field as that murderer, then it makes no sense. Well, and, and the, the, call it what it is, the arrogance of your former classmate sort of proves that point. Yeah. I know better than God. I know this doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And so Kyle, to tie in your, you know, views of anthropology, essentially like that person is elevating man above the understanding, knowledge, and ultimately justice and righteousness of God and saying, Ha ha ha, you silly Christians. But that's simply because they don't understand or ultimately believe the scandal of that grace, which makes it impossible to understand unless you are within that faith defining relationship that rewards you for your horribleness. Yep. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't reward you for your horribleness, but you know what I mean? Like, you are rewarded in spite of your horribleness, I guess is a yep. better way to put it. Yep. When I, I think this whole conversation just kind of points to the how amazing. God's love is for us because he puts the murderer and the, the gossiper in the same category. Either way, you're disobeying what God wants for you. And he doesn't grade out sins as, eh, that's a little one. And that's a big one. And they're, they're all sin. And so how, however many times you sin, however deep into depravity you are, God loves you and God has grace for you and he forgives you. And so it doesn't matter at that point. And that's the equation, no matter amazing, what. Steady and unchanging. Your love is How many times are you going to sing in this episode, Josh? I don't know. I'm just like, I'm feeling it, man. You know that You know that song, though, Gabe. Oh, so good. Kyle, so good. Kyle do you know that song? I do know that song. Tom, how about you? Who doesn't? Oh, I don't know. Maybe some of our listeners. And now they know. So you're welcome. I know. And really on that note, good. we'll give them a little bit of a breather. But before we do that, Kyle G. Jones, thanks so much for being here, man. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, Kyle is the editor, a frequent contributor to the Gospel Economist. That is medium.com backslash the-gospel-economist.com. Great articles there. Uh, I know one was just posted by Chelsea Daring. She is such a good writer. I'm really oh, glad man, you have so her. Good. Like I've been meaning to ask her. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know earlier, Kyle, you said like the you know the folks that contribute with you are are better than you are, and I would have been like, oh no, not true, not true. And then you have Chelsea on no, there. She's better. She it's just true. she's better than everyone. Um, a hundred times better than me. Yeah, yeah. Very talented writer. I encourage you to check her stuff out. She also has a blog called thechurchplantingwife.com. Um, I don't know why I'm promoting her. She's not on tonight, but she's just so good. I just love it. Well, go check it out while we're on break here. Uh, unless you're driving, don't do that then. Also, Dangerous. try to go to the website that Gabe just pointed out with a .com backslash a bunch of words and then another .com. We'll see how that one works out. Two .coms? Yeah, you put two .coms in there. See ya. We've had a bit of an existential crisis trying to figure out if any of this matters. I mean, shouting out churches, organizations, individuals, and I say yay, not nay. Because we had Janet O'Neill on the last episode, yeah, and she did. 
She did and so Gabe, good. Like, Woo-hoo. was far better spoken than any of us. She told awesome Absolutely. stories about time. Basically, Janet, you were the perfect guest. And so for all of our future guests, <laughs> 21, take notes and just try. Fact. Just yep. try. That's right. Janet O'Neill. Will probably never happen. Then we'll just suffice it to say that Axe Leander and Pastor Gabe Casper is a contributing member, not only to Pine Glass Preachers, but to our. Every time someone needs a cynical existential crisis, we can turn to Gabe. So if you feel like just fighting regular and ongoing depression, <laughs> go to Leander, Texas. So true. So true. For just a more real life, you know, concrete jungle approach. Check out Bridge City Community in Chattanooga. But if you really want to pat yourself on the back and pretend like everything's going to be okay, harvest, feed some hungry mouths, keep John, keep Tom employed, and do exist. So anyway, Yay. we thank any of our good listeners still with us on Pint Glass. Woo! Anything else?